Hello and welcome to the All Terrain podcast, brought to you by the Children and Youth Department of the Salvation Army in the United Kingdom and Ireland. I'm Jo Taylor and in each episode I'll be inviting a guest to take a hypothetical hike with me as we find out about their real life journey to this point. Along the way they'll make four choices and answer four questions. In this episode our guest is Lee Ball. Lee has worked for the Salvation Army for over 20 years and is currently the Director of Addictions. He advises all expressions of Salvation Army mission He gives guidance on how to work with the causes and consequences of addicted behaviours. Lee started his career as a residential social worker with young people with emotional and behavioural disorders. He's worked with young people with autism and those leaving care with addictions. He's also a qualified play therapist. Lee lives in Cardiff with his partner and his five children, where he loves to read, paint and gets involved in martial arts. Lee's real life experience and his qualifications and his work experience all lead to a really rich conversation. So without further ado, let's get going. Lee, it's great to have you here with us on the All Terrain podcast today. Um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about who you are and what life looks like for you. Uh, My name's Lee. Um, and I work for the Salvation Army. I'm the Director of Addictions for the Salvation Army, uh, which is a new title I was given probably six weeks ago, uh, which made me feel very important. (laughs) Um, I've been working for the Salvation Army now for 20 years, um, predominantly in the field of addiction. I started, um, I live in Cardiff. Um, I started as a worker years ago as a float support worker, Um, set up a drug treatment programme in Cardiff, which is still running the bridge programme. I became a service manager and then moved into this role around about eight, nine years ago. Um, wow. I'm also a husband. I got married last year um, after uh, the fourth time of trying, which some people have taken to mean <laughs> that I tried to get married four different times. It was actually to the same person, but because of COVID, we okay. couldn't. Of course. So that, yeah. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> uh, so the wedding just kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. So we got married um in october sorry the year before last um so we've been married just over a year now and i'm also a father um and my wife and i've got five children uh we're a blended family so there's kind of children coming from everywhere uh our eldest is kaya she's 26 Uh, then there's noah who's 16 now um eden who's 13 river who is 11 and megan as well who's 10. Um, so it's a really really busy house Yes, um, it sounds really it. colourful house. It's lovely. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's kind of me. That's amazing. Um, so it does sound like a busy house, a busy job, a busy life, loads going on. Um, the role that you're in now, um, director of, um, is it addiction services? Um, no, just addiction. Just a director of addiction. Yeah. So what what does that involve? Like, and specifically within the Salvation Army. It's it's been a long journey to get the organisation um, or to see the organisation move to the point that it's at now. Um, mm. When I first started, the organisation was synonymous with a kind of abstinence-based focus. Um, and we were presenting a paper 
And I think it caught the attention of an awful lot of people that we were starting to move into areas that were not necessarily about having a judgment on whether addiction yeah. was a good or a bad thing. It was about yeah. suspending judgment or certainly personal judgment um, and understanding that transformation for some people is not this kind of huge epiphany where everything changes overnight. It's quite mm. often a very slow drip feed. It's about meeting the person where they're at. It's about yeah. unconditional love and acceptance and grace and all those kind of Christian principles that we're, that are so deeply embedded. Yeah, I think when it comes to drug use um, and alcohol use, I think people just get really, really scared. Um, yeah. And as a result, kind of get a bit more of a um, hard and fast position over it. So yeah. once we presented there, it caught the attention that we were starting to embrace a process of harm reduction. And we wrote the harm reduction, or the Salvation Army's Christian approach to harm reduction back in 2012, took it to cabinet in 2013, and it was endorsed. And yeah. since that point, we fundamentally changed the way that we view addiction within the organisation, I think, to a much more compassionate approach yeah. i think to an approach that doesn't um cast judgment to an approach that doesn't say that we love you or we work with you when or we love you and work with you mm -hmm. if it's about just meeting the person where they're at unconditionally yeah. and i think it's that stance really is where transformation and change truly takes place so it's been kind of a, a process since that point and then since getting this job of getting people to a point where they feel safe with that concept that they yeah. don't feel that that concept kind of um puts a lot of risk on their own shoulders, where mm -hmm. it's not about condoning drug use, it's not about condoning um, the use of alcohol. This is simply about understanding that, well, to be honest, alcohol use and drug use isn't the problem. Alcohol and drug use is an attempt to deal with the problem because yeah, yeah. there is a problem behind the scenes that is driving this behaviour. Yeah. Um, it's also been a way of kind of working with the organisation to understand that we all have coping strategies. I don't yeah. think there's one of us alive that doesn't have a coping strategy. And mm -hmm. when we dig deep, our coping strategies are not always healthy, are they? Yeah. So if I came alongside you, Joe, and said <laughs> that that thing that you're doing right now is not going to help you in the long run, I'm pretty sure you'd yeah. probably pick me up by the collar and throw me out of your house and tell me <laughs> that you don't really care, it's helping you right now. So yeah. we've gone on a, a, a big kind of um, journey towards getting people to understand that those things that we do sometimes are about alleviating discomfort about mm. releasing stress um, and distress, about dealing with trauma and about basically wanting to feel better in the moment. So yeah. all of our work has been moving towards that kind of accepting stance. The organisation, I've got to be honest, have really embraced this approach yeah. as well and I've put their money where their mouth is. Like I, I, when I first started, it was just me. Um, yeah. And you kind of felt like, do you know that kind of story about that little Dutch boy running around trying to stick his finger in all the holes in the dam? It felt yeah, a bit yeah. like that. Yeah. And like you're just legging it everywhere. <laughs> Lee, that's brilliant. And it's really great to get a sense of, of what you do, but also where the Salvation Army is on this issue because you can be part of an organisation and when it's the size of ours, there are things happening that you don't know about. And it's always really encouraging to hear about the work that we're doing and, and how it's geared and how it's making a difference. And I I'm sure as our yeah. conversation goes on... Um, We'll unpack how that is a pre um, the work that you do has has influenced your understanding of some of the questions that we're going to ask, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about that. So um, we'll move on to our choices okay. and our questions. Um, as you know, um, 
we're gonna travel together um, and so we will make our first two choices for that journey um, the first question is can you tell me where we're walking today whenever I go for a walk the first thing that comes into my head is the beach mm-hmm. um, so if I would ever go for a walk if there was ever a space that I think is really kind of a therapeutic safe space for me it's near water um, yeah. and when I actually think back at 47 I don't think I've ever lived more than a mile away from the sea. Um, wow. Wherever I've lived in the whole of the UK, I've kind of followed the coast. Um, yeah. I'm not really sure what that says about me, but <laughs> I, I, lo- I love being near the sea. I love being um, able to walk on the sand, being able to go in the water. Um, mm-hmm. I started surfing when I was quite young, so I've always had this real okay. affiliation with the sea. Um, so that's where I'd be. And there's one beach in particular. Um, I actually took the team there on a team development day recently and shared it with them. Um, there's a place in Wales called Southern Down, where okay. there's this really dramatic. Like I remember going there with my mum when I was a kid, that we would get. We used to have this old beat up blue maxi years and years ago, and we used to get in the car with my mum, um, and she used to drive us to Southern Down, and Southern Down. Like as you get closer, it, back in those days there was no kind of motorway going there, so you go through all of these country lanes, through all the countryside, follow the coast all the way, and then you just come over this cliff top, and it's so dramatic. You just drop really really steeply down to the beach and the beach is like that kind of quintessential almost like smuggler's cove it's really really yeah, small yeah. in a perfect crescent and the cliffs around it are huge um and we used to go there a lot as a kid and i remember being absolutely blown away by it that if i was ever going to move anywhere this would be the place that i'd love to grow old yeah, yeah. um and it's just there's something really beautiful about it i take the kids there a lot we go there a lot with a dog we go walking um and there's just something about the place. I think when you're up on the top of the cliffs, there's a wind like you don't feel anywhere else that I've ever been. Yeah. Like it's really refreshing, really just wakes up the soul and wakes up the spirit. And then when you get down onto the water, there's something quite wild about the sea there. You never quite know what it's going to do. So the one day the waves can be really, really big or it can be really flat, really glassy and majestic. Um, but it's a for me, it's probably the space and the place where... I don't know if it was ever anywhere that I'd probably go and lay anything to rest it would be that beach it's always had a massive draw to me Um, and it's really important to the kids as well I think the kids have kind of picked that up off me as well I don't know if you can take a beach in by osmosis but the kids seem to it sounds incredible I feel like I have (laughs) oh it's amazing honestly yeah so something really beautiful something majestic exciting and a little bit dramatic sounds amazing Yeah, I'm excited to walk there. Thank you. And um, and then who who are we taking to this special place for our walk? So you can take three guests with you, um, three fellow travellers, one living, one dead and one fictional. I, I spoke to my wife about this last night and I've got to say my wife, apparently. Um, she, made me, <laughs> <laughs> um, she made me say that it would be her. I'm, I'm going to cheat on the first one, if that's all right, um, which is not cheat like me to try and take advantage of some of a situation. <laughs> I'm quite well known for it. Um, if it was to be somebody alive, I'm not going to take one. I would probably take my wife and the kids. Okay. Purely for the fact that I think there's something... When our family came together, we came together around about seven years ago, and there's been a lot of growing as a... Um, as a family where we've come together, kind of a lot of blending that's had to go on. And the beach has again always been that space that we've all gone to. Whenever we've gone yeah. on the way on holiday, we've always gone to the beach somewhere. Um, so it's quite a therapeutic place for us. And I think the kids know how important it is to me. 
So if yeah. there was ever anybody I'd want on my side, it would be the children. And I would love my wife to be there because I think when I think about the journey that both of us have been on um, together and how at times it's been difficult, I think, when you're bringing families together. Um, yeah. There's something about around a sense of safety that I get from her and from the children that I'd want them to be there with me. I think if that was yeah. the space and they're so diverse and so different is yeah. that you could never be there in one mood and not have that met by one of the others. Like when you yeah. think about the kids, they're so really, really radically <laughs> different from each other. Um, so it wouldn't matter what mood you were in. One of them would suit yeah. it. I think if yeah. it was going to be somebody uh, who's not with us anymore, I'd definitely pick my grandfather. Okay. Um, Tell us a bit about him. My granddad was... He's probably, he's a figure that's always just been heroic for me. Mm. He was always my hero um, when I was a kid. My grandfather and my sister really always stood out for me as heroes. But my grandfather was somebody who would take me walking when I was really, really young. Uh, My grandfather could literally walk what felt like for days. So we'd get up in the morning um, and my grandfather's Irish. My family, my origin of my family is originally Irish. Um, and my grandfather would get up in the morning and he'd have this routine. Like he was a really, a really quiet man. Uh, mm. So he would get up every morning, he'd have porridge, he'd have a jam sandwich, he'd get dressed, he'd be like immaculately dressed always. Like he'd have yeah. that quintessential granddad cardigan, shirt and tie <laughs> and trousers on. Like even if he was taking an engine apart, he'd still have a shirt and tie on. Still have if he was going to yeah. church, he'd have a shirt and tie on. If he was playing football, he'd have a shirt and tie on. Like anything, he'd always have a shirt and tie on. And he'd always wear a cap. So he'd put his cap on, he'd put his shirt and tie on, and the next thing we'd just go walking. And we would literally walk for hours and hours and hours. I'd like, I love walking still, so I'm really glad that we're going for a walk today. Yeah. I would always go for a walk with him, and we would literally walk for hours. That would be around scrapyards. My grandfather was really, really thrifty and could make anything out of anything. He was one of the yeah. most creative men that you've ever met in your life. And he would just pick up all these bits of what to anybody else would be junk, and he would just yeah. make magic out of these things. Yeah. Like I've never seen a creative brain quite like him and a brain that was, he was so humble and so um, uncomplicated mm-hmm. that there was something really deeply spiritual about my grandfather. Like he had a strong sense of faith, but he was one of those people. Do you know when you just feel it off somebody? Like you literally get into five metres of them and you could feel yeah. his presence. Um, <laughs> when I was a kid, he always seemed so big. Like a real big, wide, broad, strong man. But like when I look back now, um, I know he wasn't. I know he was quite small, but at the strength of like 10 tigers, this man could move a mountain if he wanted to. Yeah. Um, and he was, just, he was just an absolutely amazing character. He would barely say anything. He was so yeah. quiet. And then when he would open his mouth, just wisdom would come out of his mouth. So you would literally sit at this man's feet and listen to him for hours. Yeah. Um, it was unbelievable. <laughs> and the other thing I remember about him um, is that he was absolutely... He had the biggest ears I've ever seen. So he would, like, he would literally... Do you know, like the BFG, like his ears? Yeah, I was just going to say, like the BFG. the size of this man's head. <laughs> yeah. But he was completely deaf. Oh, so wow. I've never seen anybody with such big ears and yet actually not be able that to hear no it. purpose whatsoever. No, absolutely none. none no purpose Does it hold whatsoever. hold his hat up, I suppose? Well, that, it'd keep his cap on so it'd blown off in the breeze. <laughs> but whenever you go to church with my granddad, and we grew up in a Catholic church, whenever you go to church with my granddad, he would love to sing. 
Like whenever yeah. the hymn started, my granddad's voice was booming. And because he couldn't hear a thing, he was rubbish. He was the worst <laughs> singer in the whole of the church. But everybody in the church, you'd find people just staring at this man. Like, why is he booming like that? Doesn't yeah, say yeah. anything. And then he opens his mouth to sing and everybody can hear him. <coughs> um, and there's just things like that that I remember about him. So yeah, I think they were... If there was probably anybody I would look back and think that when I grew up, I wanted to be like, mm. it was probably him. And yeah. I've not mastered being quiet. I've not, mastered, <laughs> I've not mastered any of the traits that I admired him, but they were always traits. And I think for me, he was, well, he was just everything that you would want a granddad yeah. to be. Like I remember holding his hand. He wasn't a tactile man, but sometimes if you held his hand, like I've never, your hand would be tiny in his and it would be so strong. And you knew yeah. if my granddad was there, nothing was going to happen. Like yeah, that man yeah. could keep you safe. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it would be him that I would walk with. I'm I'm really glad he's coming. <laughs> um, and who would be your fictional person to join this? Um, like diverse and fascinating and dynamic group of people. Who, who fictional are we going to throw into that mix? And this is the person I bring with us today. Um, it's okay. Don Quixote. And okay. I remember reading Don Quixote and just being so overwhelmed by how ludicrous and ridiculous and charismatic and creative that this person was, that literally they would see things that weren't there and they would mm. be in battles that never existed and they would be so romantic and so emotionally driven to the point of absolute absurdity. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? This man was just purely driven by his heart, would be lost in the moment, would be so poetic that it was just, it was such a juxtaposition to where I think I was at the time when I yeah. read it, that yeah. in my head that you had to be a certain type of character, you had to be really tough, you had to be all of these yeah. different things and yet here was this gentle, poetic, creative soul. So I think yeah. I've always... And I, I think I get this from my grandfather, certainly from my mum. Um, quite a strong sense of social justice, a sense of mm -hmm. being fighting. When if there is a, if there is a fight that you need to step up to, you go in there with a courageous heart. It's not about winning. Do you know what I mean that's not the point? It's about the fight. You go in there and you stand up for yourself and you stand up for other people, and you fight the good fight. And the thing that I loved about Don Quixote is, irrespective of whether it was windmills that were giants um, in the way that he saw them that he would always march in there like with his sword drawn. And I always remember feeling that that was, that was the point of anybody's life, yeah. is that you would stand up for injustice and you would stand up against things, irrespective of whether they were real or not. You simply wouldn't let people um, be trodden on. And just how absurd it would be. Like you wouldn't get five yards down the beach and all of a sudden you'd be in a battle with somebody else or you'd be involved <laughs> in this yeah. or you'd be involved in that. Like I remember being a kid and my mum would take us out on days out when we were a kid when we were kids and we we didn't have much <laughs> i don't even think it's fair to say we had much at all um but my mum was re would always have a massively creative brain so she would be able to make something out of nothing um and i think i've kind of inherited that a little bit from my mum and my granddad and then just really embellished it over the years that you have to i'm lucky i've been given a really creative brain so i like exploring that and i like being with people who are like-minded in that way yeah. Wow. I mean, even if we didn't have some really interesting questions to dig into, this would be great. It'd be a wicked <laughs> like, day out, uh, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it would be so 
great. It'd be like, Don Quixote like, just giving up all of that. And my granddad saying nothing. <laughs> Making really cool stuff out yep. of the things that we find on the beach. Um, oh, what a brilliant bunch of people. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing those with us. Um, so now we know where we are and who is with us. Um, I can ask you our first question. How do you face change? This is a really good question because I think there's two sides to this. I'm thinking about this. There's two sides to this. I think in terms of facing change when it's probably I feel like I'm the mercy of it or I'm the victim of change or I'm the recipient of change <coughs> that maybe I don't agree with. I can be really stubborn. I can dig my heels in. Um... I suppose I can push back against it. I think when it's changed that I kind of want to see happen or that I'm a part of or I'm in control of, um, that I massively embrace it. Um, I try and make change happen a lot because I think that movement, <clears throat> we have to move, we have to grow, we have to create new things. <coughs> Sorry. We have to create new things. So I constantly try to evolve and think of new things to do and um, think of new things to to kind of create so i think change for me is a really really important force it's something that i would really embrace providing it's a change that i agree with if that makes sense so a lot of the um the political situation that we can see in the world at the moment the way that things are changing um and the control is being taken away from people or control is held in the hands of a handful of people. Yeah. That really troubles me. Yeah. Really, really troubles me. Um, when you can see that the voice and choice is taken away from people um, across the world and certainly within the UK at the moment, I think it's... Yeah. It's a really difficult thing to just sit and be a bystander to. I think that's one of the reasons why... I chose to come and work for the Salvation Army because for me it was about social change, about social justice, um, about standing up for people who maybe their voice had been taken away. Um, so that's why I'm here. But as an organisation, sometimes we're quite slow to change and I find that frustrating. Um, but I can't get away from the fact that we do and we have changed, we have evolved, we have embraced things that um, sometimes have made us feel uncomfortable. But we shouldn't just sit around being comfortable with the situation that we're seeing. We shouldn't just be comfortable with the change that we're seeing when we don't agree with it or it's not right. Um, and therefore, I think change is something that you should campaign for, something you should engage with, um, but something that we should always make sure is morally the, for the right reason. Um, yeah. So I wouldn't say I'm frightened of it. Um, I don't dig my heels in unless it's wrong. Um, and probably, and if you ask an awful lot of people around me, they tell me that I just need to stop changing sometimes and stop making new things happen and stop doing this. <laughs> I remember once I worked with this fella and he turned around and he said, do you realise how exhausting you are? Um, <laughs> and I know that I am, like I can look at my wife's eyes sometimes and I can just see a roll in them, just like, would you just stop? Um, I can see the kids just like, dad, just shut up. Like it doesn't have to, we don't have to be doing new things all the time. Um, so I think change for me is quite life affirming. I like, I like the energy that comes with change. Yeah. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because I'm really interested in that relationship between power and change. Yeah. Um, because so many 
there are some changes that just sort of happen um but a lot of change like um change in systems and structures and things like that are dependent on who holds the power yeah and so recognizing that power dynamic in change is really important because that will inform how we approach it won't it absolutely and i think the level of control that you're given within it as an individual yeah. as well is that sometimes we can have quite a negative relationship with the word control because of the connotations that goes behind it but it's part of the human condition to want control over your environment to want to be in control because it reassures you it gives you a sense of safety um, you know what's coming or certainly you're an agent and you have agency in what's coming. I think when that dynamic or that power or that control is taken away from you and change is imposed, you, it elicits such a fear response from people is that they will either dig in. Generally, that's kind of where the fight, flight or freeze response comes from. Um, and the people's kind of thinking brain immediately goes offline. If you want people to really um, be on board with change, they need to understand it, they need to be involved in it, and they need to be given some control. And I think one of the things that you certainly see at the moment with just the sheer level of poverty that we have, um, is the choices are being taken away from people left, right and centre. And it's really difficult to operate in a sphere where you're told that you have choices and you're made responsible for them, but when you actually dig down into it, what are the choices there for an awful lot of people to make? Um, so that kind of power of control and cho change dynamic absolutely it's really interesting really really interesting yeah. and i see that in your your work isn't it i mean with that the shifts that you spoke about um yeah. right at the beginning it's about agency isn't it yes and it's about yeah. instead of of creating a it's our way or the highway you you give agency and you journey with people and and while you're working towards change actually you shift who holds the power in in making that change and i and i guess the reason you've done that is because that's the only way it sticks right absolutely and it's understanding the context that people are in what seems like a completely irrational choice to you may yeah. be completely irrational to me when certainly when we look in the field of addiction if you look at the fact that people are kind of trying to say you just need to change your behavior you just need to make a change here or a change there you're talking to a, a group sometimes that don't have the options that you have and yet you're expecting them to act in the same way that you do and I think when we're told that or we, we kind of reinforce that position that you're making bad decisions you're making bad choices um, without any understanding of the context that the person is in and an understanding the fact that this person doesn't have any choices they can't think in the way that you're currently thinking about the situation sometimes because there's just such an abject loss of hope yeah. And you're expecting people to make good decisions and good choices in that or good decisions and good choices because you think they are. I remember from lit, from my own drug use in history, <clears throat> sometimes you just want to switch things off. And it's not about trying to escape and not make choices or make choices that seem like they're destructive or dysfunctional. Whenever I used drugs, they were perfectly functionable. They served an absolute purpose. Yeah. They gave you relief. At the time, I may have thought that this was about getting off my head or about having a laugh or do no it was about trying to get rid of some of the pain that you were feeling mm. um so choice is always i think really it's, you have to understand the context you have to understand where this comes from yeah yeah 
and for so many of us there's there's privilege in that isn't it like we yeah yeah the the privilege of being able to make the right choices and yeah. wouldn't it be having, wonderful if that applied to all <laughs> yeah absolutely and 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 that's where the hope piece then comes in because mm-hmm. we we know what it we know what cert, the results of certain choices and because we've seen them but if you don't give the opportunity to see those and that's that's true on a personal scale like you have to believe there's a there's something better or trust that there's something better for yourself but it's true on the bigger scale isn't it like the political situation absolutely um it's knowing what knowing what could be rather than just what is yeah i was speaking to my wife the other day um and she was she pointed out this piece of research that said if you put a child in a position of poverty at this moment in time it'll take them 150 years to break out of it wow now when you put somebody in that position how are they going to experience change how are they going to experience choices because without any ability to break out of that situation they're going to have to seize change by any means necessary they're going to have to take whatever choice is in front of them to get out of that situation because if they don't, they're at the mercy, do you know what I mean? They're, they're more or less the victim of the circumstance they're in. And nobody wants to be in that kind of victim yeah. mindset. People want to take control in whichever way it presents itself in front of them. And I think when we're thinking about change and choices and things like that at this moment in time, I don't remember a more difficult time to be thinking about changing choices at the moment. Because even when you think on the back end of the pandemic and coming out of that, there was so much change that literally you had no control over, was taken completely away from you and out of your hands. I think it really gave a lot of people the understanding that changing choices they're so intrinsically linked to the relationships and to the situation that we find ourselves in at that time Mm. that you would really hope that change whenever it comes as a force is always kind of counterbalanced with kindness yeah yeah if it's not going to be kind and it's not necessary then is it really worth it yeah 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 that's right it's really helpful yeah I'm really challenged to think about that power dynamic and mm. and about the stories that we tell and and how we identify those opportunities or fight for the opportunities when they currently don't exist. Um, for me, that's one of the main points of the work that I think we do within the Salvation yeah. Army is fighting for other people to be able to be in some element of control over the change that they experience because there's a lot of people in our services who I'm pretty sure would love to change the circumstances that they find themselves in. There's an awful lot of staff working within the organisation that would love to change the circumstances that they find themselves in. Um, So change is really, really, really important. And I think as an organisation, we always have to make sure that we use the privilege that we've got the gift of being given to make and to support and to make change be placed in the hands of the people who really deserve it, be placed in the hands of the people who should be controlling it, um, and not think all that kind of arrogant sense is that we understand what needs to be changed, actually make sure that we directly involve the person in that. Um, yeah. I use this story a lot in training, the story of um, Max Planck, that German physicist, um, who 
travelled with his um, chauffeur all the way around Germany uh, when he won the Nobel Prize in the 30s. And he would always give, go up on stage and give these speeches and would always bring his chauffeur on stage with him and introduce his chauffeur to the audience. And his chauffeur was like with him every single day for a year. Um, and his chauffeur would listen to Max telling the story in the back of the car, uh, telling, uh, reciting his speech in the back of the car every day. We'd go up on stage and we'd listen to him doing it every night on stage again. And the chauffeur turned to him at the end of the year and said, Max, you know what, I could do this talk myself. I've listened to it so much. So Max Planck allowed him to, allowed his chauffeur to get up on stage and introduce himself as Max Planck. Gives this <laughs> wonderful speech, actually word perfect, in the same way that Max had done it every day for a year. And just as he's about to walk off stage in Berlin, he gets a stand innovation and two fellas stand at the back of the room and say, Max, we've got a question for you. Now, obviously, this is the chauffeur pretending to yeah. be Max. So the colour in his face just absolutely <laughs> drains. He's like, what am I going to do? So he turns around and looks at these two fellas and this moment of genius just hits him and he says, guys, that's such an easy question. My chauffeur could answer it, who obviously <laughs> is the real Max Planck. And for me, that story is always really, really important when we understand the fact that you can't have the arrogance of being in front of a room full of people and pretending that you're the expert. Nobody's the expert. Mm. If we're going to learn about change and what change is necessary, let's not think that we understand that or let's not think that we have the right to impose that on anybody or any group of people. Let's involve that person. Let's involve that group of people. How does change, how should it serve a purpose for you right now? And actually give authority, give control back to the groups of people um, yeah. that we're trying to see flourish. That, to me, is the work of the Salvation Army. That's what we should be doing. Yeah. Thanks, Lee. Um, yeah, there's so much in that that I'm sure um, inf informs your response to this next question as well. Um, so really interested to hear your thoughts on, on this, on how we move through suffering. How do you move through suffering? <laughs> um, <laughs> Bear in mind that the answer you get today, if you ask me again in about 20 minutes, you'll probably get a different answer because it constantly <laughs> moves. Um, again, this is a question that really I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And I think it's really um, shone a light on the different stages of my life because I think the way that I've dealt with suffering has been different. And I think it's evolved and I think it's changed over the years. But I think when I was really young, um, there were a couple of things that happened. And I think they've left a mark. Well, I know they've left a mark still until this day where you had no control over the things that were done. Um, and at that time, I think suffering for me was something that you thought was your own fault. You thought that you kind of asked for it or you deserved it and that's where you kind of get that internal dialogue. Which is heartbreaking to think, do you know what I mean? That from a really young age that there's something wrong with me. It was that internal dialogue that you deserve this, you're disgusting, you're this, you're that or the other. Um, and I think no matter how we try and create environments around people and young people, certainly, there's such a natural inclination for people to think it's their fault and they're the cause of the suffering. I remember years ago reading um, this little story, it was by Kierkegaard, and there was a story about a father and a son sat on a hill, and they're both in a deep sense of sadness and suffering, and the father's kind of looking at the son, not saying anything and thinking, I'm the source of all my son's suffering. And the son's looking at the father and thinking, I'm the source of all my father's suffering. And as a result, they don't say anything to each other. 
and they both just sit there suffering. And I think you see that a lot with young people, like I can see with my own children. Um, beautiful, we, we, we're absolutely blessed. We've got beautiful children, but really sensitive children. And as a result, I think sensitivity often comes with a sense of pain because you feel so much, you're open to so much. And when I look at my children, I was talking to Eden the other day, um, sat upstairs, and to hear at 13 years of age that this young woman can find things so difficult. Yeah. And you can see this young woman just really desperately trying to cope and to see this young woman have such courage in being able to talk to me about it and being able to be open about it and seek release in that way. Um, I wish I'd had that power when I was that age because I think when I was young, I felt uh, victimised by it. I, I felt like I was the recipient of this suffering. And then from a really young age, I did anything basically to get rid of it. Yeah. Um, I would involve myself in really reckless situations, um, dangerous situations. Um, you would almost create like this alter ego that nothing could touch you and that you would do anything, anywhere. Um, and when I look back now, I think an awful lot of my kind of early teenage years, up until probably my early 20s, I think was spent fighting against this and fighting in the fact that I would do anything to make it go away, no matter how nasty it got. Um, and therefore, I think suffering for me was something that I always felt that my only way of dealing with it was fighting back against it. But then, and I was thinking about this a lot last night, I think with suffering from a really young age, I remember reading probably 11, 12 and 13, 13 was probably when it was at its worst. Um, I think that sense of suffering caused such a deep sense of sadness and such a deep sense of depression um, that by the time I was 13, I was, when I look back now, probably so deeply depressed, I would cut myself, I would hurt myself, I would do anything to get rid of some of the pain. I would take anything, do anything to get rid of some of that pain. Um, and I remember having this one moment when I was really young of thinking, I just can't carry on. Um, I don't think I can do this anymore. Where just at such a young age, you were having thoughts about ending things. And then this one day, this, I had this moment, and I still don't know to this day where it came from. Um, that I remember thinking that there's almost like this shared sense of happiness, that everybody understands what happiness is. It's like the sunset or kids playing and it's this and that. And we're kind of told what happiness is, but yeah. nobody tells you what sadness is. And therefore, you go through your own internal journey thinking, yeah. well, nobody talks about this. Nobody says what this is. Um, when we think about suicidal ideation or self-harm, certainly back then, nobody would talk about it. So if it was something that you thought, this is wrong with me, or this is my fault, or I deserve this. And I think then, I thought my only way of getting around this or getting through this is learning to love it. Yeah. And as dysfunctional as that probably sounds, I learned to love the fact that there was a side of my character that nobody else had. There was a side or the way that I saw the world that nobody else had. And it was completely unique to me. And I started to love it. Yeah. And started to, rather than try and push it away, to actually bring it closer um, and wrap my arms around it and love all those dark corners. My best friend, a lad called Davy, um, once said to me at a really, really huge um, moment of change in my life, 
he just rang me up one day and just used this phrase and said, do you know all those dark corners you try and hide? He said, I love all those as well, just so you know. Yeah. And literally, just like, I remember the wow. tears streaming down my face and how profoundly yeah. powerful that was, that suffering, you have to love it. You have to love, yeah. it, love it unconditionally. And that's where real, I think, healing takes place. So how do I move through it? I probably try and deny it at the moment. I probably try and turn around and rescue other people and make it about them because yeah. there's that natural inclination that it's not about me, so it has to be about somebody else. Then I think at 47, it takes me a while to admit that it's going on. But once I admit it, then I embrace it. I remember the strength that I showed as a young person. Um, I don't seek relief in the way that I used to. I seek relief from the people I've got around me. To me, whether it's playing with the kids, uh, being with my wife. Um, what do you think helped make you make that shift from? I don't those know. Kind of those things that hurt you to the things that, like the things that hurt you further to the things that now bring relief and healing. I think I got. I was around about 24, 25, and um, I was working but having no joy. I was getting money from doing things that I shouldn't have been doing and still getting no joy. Um, on paper, my life probably looked amazing um, and it was really, really deeply sad. And then I remember one day waking up and just thinking that things have to change and um, I went to a place called the Rural Autistic Society. Um, and this is when I was 24, 25. It's right next to Strawberry Fields on Beaconsfield Road, which is weird, like this connection with the organization. Yeah, yeah. So I went there and just said, look, is this something I can do? Um, and they said, well, what skills have you got? And the skills that I had at that time were not skills that you would be able to use. With like, <laughs> so I was just like, well, I don't really know. Um, I yeah. said, I like painting. Um, I've always been really into painting and drawing. Um, so I said I like painting and they said well we've got this basement it needs to be decorated uh, the young people is going to be a, a play place for them uh, downstairs so they let me just vandalise a room for about three weeks with a bunch <laughs> of children um, and paint it and do whatever I wanted so we um, graffitied all these walls painted them and I had such a feeling of joy mm. that it was undescribable that all of a sudden that I felt that what some people would describe as a calling um, was this sense of that you can use everything that you've been through not to understand how other people are feeling because empathy is not about I know what you're going through because I've been there mm -hmm. but it was about how can I use the things that I understand and the things that I've faced to give me insight into how somebody else might also be feeling and be able to share that journey with them um, yeah. that was such a transitional moment that was the, the moment of transformation in my life is that all of a sudden you can do something with this this thing that you've got this pain that you've got um, the sense that there is something wrong with you you can use it yeah um, and use it in the service of other people and become a better version of yourself and I think that's the moment where everything really really changed yeah because all of a sudden I think I got to a point where it wasn't about reward or recognition or what I could get or the control or anything like that. It was simply about 
the fact that people loved you as you were in that moment. They accepted me exactly as I was. When I knocked on that door, they made me welcome. Yeah. When I knocked on yeah. that door, they could have pushed me away and they didn't and they brought me in. And that is that was such an epiphany for me as I thought I want to give that to other people because I knew how that felt myself when somebody loved you just as you were. Yeah. And they gave you agency as well, didn't they? Like as we talked about earlier, it wasn't about them saying, come in and, and no. we will help you if you do um, this thing that we want you to do. Actually, they invited you as you were it was it gave I, you the opportunity to yeah. it was to it, they used an approach like way before like when we think about like a lot of the language that we use internally is around trauma informed practice and mm. strength based approaches and stuff like that this was what 24 years ago yeah that language didn't exist back then we didn't know that's what we were doing back then when you think about what they did they opened the door and they didn't see somebody they saw the contact they generally they, they saw me as I was they didn't see this thing that I looked like um and they saw me for the skills that I had they asked me what I could do they asked me what I possessed they asked me what was inside me they didn't sit there and go well you need to do x y and z um and they literally drew out my strengths and then played on my strengths and then gave me agency with my strengths and just left me to it and gave me, of course, there were parameters within which I could work. Do you know what I mean? I couldn't go around just vandalising the whole surface. They stuck me in one area to contain me. <laughs> but it was just that sheer liberty of expression that they gave. Me and Sean, a lad that I worked with once, was speaking um, to this guy up in Scotland, and he said, the one thing that is absolutely catastrophic to people is when you take their voice away from them. Yeah. And we see this a lot with homelessness. Do you know what I mean? You, the, the voice of the person who is experiencing homelessness is quite often taken away from them. They're shut up mm. and they're pushed away. And nobody wants to listen to them. When we see that the fact that you can allow somebody to come back and shout and scream and be just as they are in that moment and love them just as they are in that moment. Yeah. That that's that's the thing that made the difference is it was without condition. Yeah. And I think that for me, if we're ever gonna work with suffering, that's the place that we always should be starting, is that we love without condition. And in that place, that's where real healing and reparation can take place. That's how you start to unpack suffering. Because if we don't do that, the person is going to constantly carry that sense of shame around with them, that they're the fault, that they're the problem. Yeah. yeah. Oh. That's really good, Lee. <laughs> I ranted then, didn't I? <laughs> No. You'll get used like, to this. <laughs> I just feel like I need a breath. Because um, it's... There's so much there that's helpful personally, isn't there? In terms of like how we deal with our own suffering and our own pain in terms of seeking out joy, which we'll come to later. Yeah. Um, leaning into our purpose, which we'll come to, come to later about making sure we're in the spaces and with the people who allow us to be ourselves. Um, so that's all really helpful for us, but there's also a real challenge for us in how we can be that for other people, how we can create that for, for others. And when people turn up at our door, whether it's a stranger or even one of our friends, how do we love their dark corners um, 
and make sure they know that we love all of them, including those dark corners? I think sometimes when we see suffering, and it's part of human instinct, we just want to take it away. Mm. And we just want to make it go away from people. And we just want to kind of say, well, that's not, that's gone. When that suffering is fundamentally sometimes what shapes people. And I think to try and make it go away or take it from people or save we often hear the word, use the word saved. That's not necessarily what the person wants. That's like mm-hmm. somebody coming to you with a problem and you're giving them a solution when all they want to be is listened to. Yeah. That pain and that suffering sometimes is a thing that shaped. And sometimes one of the best things we can do, love them as they are in that moment and give them an opportunity to tell their story. Yeah. Because if I can tell my story and you still love me, yeah. then that's... That's what it is without condition. There was a, a gentleman who used to work in uh, as one of our services called St. Brickens. <clears throat> and this gentleman called Eamon. And I remember him saying to me once, he was in a training course. He turned around and he said, every single one of us sits there with a thought in our head. When they look at the people that they love, they say to themselves, if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. Yeah. And he said, we all have that secret in our head that we all hide that bit of our kind of of ourselves and of our souls that if you knew this, then you wouldn't love me. So I've got to hide it from you. Mm. And what a sense of unconditional love when you can get to a place where you're able to talk about those things and there's no shame, there's no blame, there's no trying to hide it, there's no immediately trying to snatch it from you and take it away because it's too painful. Yeah. It's simply about let's just sit there with this. And this yeah. is a space where we can sit there with this. And not try and have a resolution, not try and have a solution to this, not try and make this go away, not try and pretend it never happened. Yeah. But love this little bit as well. There are some things that won't go away, ever, aren't there? There, You know, there is suffering that will always be a part of someone's life. And if you're looking to fix that, then then everything feels like a failure. Yeah. (laughs) But for those that, that know they are in that, place of suffering but they are loved through it and supported through it yeah that's really helpful i have i think as a dad that's the thing that i know sometimes i can make the mistake of like if i see one of the kids if they're sad or if they're down um if they're unhappy or if they're in pain Mm. do you mean you just want to run in there and take it away from them pick them up and cuddle them and just say look everything's going to be okay And I remember my son Noah turned around to me once and said, you don't give me any room to be sad, Dad. Like, you just want to make it better all the time. I know he's he's so clever. (laughs) Like, about the age of four, I knew my son was cleverer than me. (laughs) But I remember, like, he said that, and he was just like, like, you've got to give me room to be sad. And I suppose in my own head, I was just like, I don't want you to feel the way that I think I used to feel. Like, I don't want you to have to go through that. I want to make this better. And say... When that's a part of growth, that's a part of who we are. Yeah. What I needed to do was just sit alongside him and say, I can see this. <clears throat> yeah. Not I can see this and I'm going to take it away. Not that I can see this and you need to do this or tell him what, how to... But I can see it too, son. Yeah. And just sit there with him. At least that way he knows that somebody is there alongside him. And I think after he said that, that was probably one of the biggest challenges to me as a parent that I've had to really grow and evolve through. Um, like my son's immense like he's probably taught me what it is to be a man my son mm. he's really um, he's a wonderful role model to me like an absolute wonderful role model my son and I think 
that's probably one of the biggest life lessons I've learned, not just on a personal, but certainly on a professional yeah. capacity. Don't go running in and try and take this away from somebody. They need to be heard first. Yeah. Otherwise, what are you telling them? You're telling them suffering's bad. You're telling them that suffering is wrong and you're just reinforcing that thing that they think they're the problem. It's almost shaming them with the best intentions. It's counterintuitive sometimes. Yeah. Gosh, there's so much to think about there, Lee. Um, So often when we get to this next choice, um, I say it's, you know, if we need a little or break from the conversation because we're going to put something in our ears that isn't the conversation now and actually I feel like I could do with that just to think <laughs> on some I of made the you want things, a break on some of the things that you said no not a break an opportunity to reflect because there was so much there um it was it was really great um so I'm going to take a little deep breath now while you tell us what we are listening to as we hike ah right the song um <clears throat> I, i'm gonna cheat again i've got two that's fine <laughs> oh, I, that's i'm not fine. gonna cheat i'm gonna pick one i am gonna pick one but there were two <laughs> songs that were in my head when i was thinking about this the first one is uh, a song that uh, sung by a guy called johnny flynn uh, Johnny Flynn is like a folk singer, mm-hmm. a modern day folk singer, and he sings. Have you ever watched that program, The Detectorists, about the two fellas who would go around with metal detectors and would try and find? It was a beautiful story, really okay. gentle, really funny. Um, Gareth McKenzie's in it, like he's amazing in it. Yeah. Um, and there's a theme tune to that about um, finding something that's lost. And you would search the whole earth to find this thing that was lost. Um, and that was the song that was played as my wife walked down the aisle. Oh, wow. um, and it was about finding that thing that's lost. And to me, that's what my wife is. I remember uh, years and years ago when we first met, there was just her voice was, it was almost like there was something in my head that recognised it straight away, like she'd been lost yeah. all those years and now I found it. Um, so that was one of the songs that I was thinking about. But the first song that came to mind straight away was Son of a Preacher Man by Dusty Springfield. Yeah. Um, when I grew up, my mum, I think one of her ways of finding relief and release from some of the hardships that she felt when she was young was music. My mum was really into music. My mum loved dancing. Absolutely yeah. adored that. My mum was amazing at dancing. Do you know when someone just gets up on the dance floor and you look at it, it's like, wow. Like my mum was a brilliant, um, absolutely amazing. I used to love watching my mum dance. My mum, uh, I was going to say taught me to dance, like I still can't dance, but she tried <laughs> to teach me to dance. But there would always be like loads of Motown and soul music and stuff like that growing up in our house. And I remember the first time I heard Dusty Springfield sing. Yeah. And there's something about her voice that just touches you, or to me, it yeah. touches my soul. There's a pitch that she has. Um, and that song, I think, is, is there's just something about it. Like, it's one of the most simple, um, emotive songs that just captures you. Like, you can't help but move to it. Um, and I always knew the mood that my mum was in in the house when we grew up, depending on what she was playing. 
And mm-hmm. if Dusty Springfield was on, I knew that my mum was in a really passionate, powerful place. Um, and what a wonderful singer as well, Dusty Springfield. Yeah, yeah. And this passionate, powerful woman who then was ostracised due to her sexuality, do you know what I mean? And that's an absolutely yeah. disgraceful thing that somebody should be pushed out of communities because of that. And then to see her kind of have that rebirth and then come back and come back as, as such a strong, powerful woman. Mm. I think I love the story behind it as well. To the point that, like, I, I play that song a lot. And now I was upstairs the other day and my daughter's playing it in her bedroom. And to think that this song was skipped generations in my family. Like, it was yeah, really yeah. powerful for my mum, really powerful for me. And now I've got this 13-year-old daughter who's playing it to her mates. It. And her mates are turning around going, what on earth are you listening to? <laughs> <laughs> but um, if something's good, it's good, right? Oh, they just, there's something, it doesn't matter what mood I'm in, if yeah. I chuck that song on, it, it just yeah. takes me somewhere. I yeah. love it, absolutely love it. If there oh, was going to be a song, song like that. it would be that. That's the song I listen to. I think that's a great choice, Lee. And 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 that kind of joyful conversation helps us um, as we go on to the next question. Um, you've already shared so much joy um, with us, um, but how do you receive joy? When you mean when you ask that question, how do I receive it? As in, what gives me joy, or how do I experience joy when it comes? How do I work through it? I think you can say whatever you want here. Okay. Um, the thing that brings me the most joy is my family. It's genuinely yeah. my kids and my wife. I think um, when I can see that they're happy or when I can see even when they're sad mm. and they're safe in their yeah. sadness it's not overwhelming or it's not even when it feels overwhelming that it's not they know they've got somebody next to them um when i see them giggling uh even when it's bedtime and it's irritating and i just want you to go to bed but just to hear the sound of the kids laughing yeah. and hear the sound of the kids being kind um that's probably the thing that gives me the joy the most is when i see the kids being kind to other people yeah without knowing anybody's watching anybody's observing and seeing that just seeing that take place i absolutely love that um i think how do i go through joy i think i think i've learned to over the years to trust it a little bit more okay i think when i was young um i think I always thought the good things would really quickly be followed by bad. Mm. Um, I never really trusted it. Um, and there are moments <clears throat> still to this day when things are good are probably the times that I probably feel the most scared because yeah. I think everything's about to change, everything's about to be taken away. And that stems right back to my childhood. I know where that comes from. Um, so joy is a thing that I probably have a little bit of fear of. Um, but as you get older, I, th- I suppose I've become a little bit more self-assured, um, a little bit more confident um, in who I am. Yeah. So it's something that I can brace a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's home. That's what gives me joy. I love walking back in through the front door. Yeah. Um, I love walking back in and seeing just the pattern of life happening in your own house right in front of you. And seeing yeah. the kids playing, the kids being kind. Um, 
which if they listen to this doesn't happen often enough. <laughs> um, but I think that's what it is. When I see, like, the, the kids on the street sometimes, when they see something wrong or some sense of injustice, and I see them want to stand out against it. I'll give you yeah. two recent examples. Noah... Um, came home from school and he was doing a, I think it was for some uh, citizenship and he was doing an essay and he did it on homelessness. And I was really proud because like, I remember being a kid and having that moment that you wanted to be like your granddad or you wanted to be like your dad. However dysfunctional some of those people could be around you. It's a child thing, do you know what I mean? To to aspire to be like this. And I remember seeing Noah doing something and I didn't really talk about it and then maybe a week or two later he'd gone out and (laughs) you'll be mortified I'm telling you this he went out on a date with his girlfriend and he rang me up and he was like dad what shirt should I wear what should I do what should I I say so I was giving him all this advice on the phone and it was such a beautiful that gave me loads of joy yeah (laughs) and then he goes out on his date and I was down in William Booth College um, so I put out with some friends with T came back in it must have been about half past 11 and I texted him and I said like how did your date go mate and he was like oh dad it was wonderful like he used the word romantic and like, my heart just broke I was like oh, my son it was wonderful <laughs> um, so I, I, we got into this little email thing like backwards and forwards and I was like it's choking me now talking about it I was just like I'm really proud of you like you're a good young man like I'm really you're amazing you've blown me away and he sent back this text and said I'm really proud of you he said, and I don't think I realised until recently, like, how you try to make a difference. Yeah. And I think that affirmation from my children is probably the only area in all of my relationships where my instant reaction is not to mistrust it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, I, I think does. because of things that have yeah. happened, um, sometimes you can mistrust how things appear on the surface. Yeah. And doubt them. I think with my kids... That's the one thing I've never done with my kids. It's always taken, as they say it, right from the word go, I don't distrust them. I don't mistrust them in that way because I don't think they're going to hurt me. Um, <clears throat> so that was wonderful. And then Eden, we were talking last night and um, she was telling me about this essay that she was doing at school. And they had to do an essay and she was doing an essay on addiction. She never even asked me about it. Um, and, she was do- and she'd done all this research um, yeah. into the loss of life in Wales and how things need to change. And yeah. and you could just hear in this, like she read out and she was like, Dad, I got an A for this. Got to the end of it and I was like, sweet, I'm not surprised. Like it was amazing. It was a wonderful piece of work. And just to see the fact that kids are growing up, my children are growing up, our children are growing up with such a sense of social justice. Mm. I think it really, that brings me massive amounts of joy. Yeah. And I remember my mum once when we were not that long ago saying one of the things that made her so proud is the fact that all of her children had gone into the field of social care. Yeah. Like I do this job, my sister's a social worker for older people. Um, my brother at the time was working in child protection, is now a lecturer in social policy. Um, so no matter what happened, how sometimes things were quite all over the place when we were young, we always grew up with a strong sense of social justice. Yeah, and yeah. social justice brings me joy. Yeah, yeah. And it is that thing of, there's a couple of things that I I think 
I feel after hearing you say all of that. And the first thing is, like, there is joy everywhere. And in the midst of pain, it can be harder to trust. But yeah. <laughs> actually, it, it, still, it still exists. Yes. And the things that bring us joy are so much deeper than circumstance. And, and that's beautiful. And then the other thing is that my favourite thing about this question is that I always sit through it with a massive smile on my face because, and I, I'm sure I've said this before, but the thing about joy is that your own joy always becomes an invitation to others to experience joy as well. That's and a beautiful so, way of saying it. When I hear people talking about their joy, um, whatever it is, and this is your family who I don't even know, but I feel a deep sense of joy that that you experience this, that your family exists. And it also reminds me of the joy I feel in my own family and those moments with my own kids. And so it's a really helpful reminder to share joy um to share the things that are really good because it becomes an invitation and and your own joy can hugely impact the joy of those around you um, do you know when you walk down the street and for no reason whatsoever someone just smiles at you yeah yeah like it changes your life it changes yeah. your worldview in that moment like for people to say that we can't make change in the world you can change somebody's entire day, literally in a couple mm. of seconds, by just smiling and giving joy to another person. And when you say to people, <clears throat> like, just for a moment, just stop and think about the last time that happened to you. And then all of a sudden you get this rush of emotions through your body, don't you? I feel like fuzzy and I feel warm and I feel... The minute you start to share joy with each other or talk about it, it's mm. like sitting next to a kid when they open the best ever present at Christmas. Yeah. You, know I mean? you can just feel that excitement, like, to the point where then almost making a noise, like, <laughs> it just gets out of control. They start yeah. to, joy has that ability because yeah. I think it's almost like the minute you start to speak about joy, the emotion comes out, like it's bigger than you. And yet absolutely it touches those near to you. Yeah. It would be really nice, I think, as a community if we actually concentrated a little bit more on sharing joy. Yeah, yeah. It's really transformational, I think. Yes, yes, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, so we're going to make our final choice now. Um, so lots of walking, lots of talking. What are we having for our sustenance? What's in the <laughs> <laughs> uh, sustenance is probably the wrong word because it wouldn't be very sustaining. <laughs> okay. That makes um, me quite hopeful that it's going to be good then. Uh, it, it won't be good for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'm really, really, really in, into cooking, and I like making, I like making nice food. I like sitting with the kids and cooking and talking and eating. Like we always eat at the table that I'm sat at now, um, and there's something so wonderful about that. And I know this is wrong, but if you were to put me into a position where I could only eat one thing. They would have no nutritional value to it whatsoever. <laughs> you would not have to sit there for hours and cook it up. And it'd be a cheese and onion crisp sandwich. I oh love them. Oh, my gosh. I absolutely Heaven. love them. Heaven. Yeah. 
honestly, I'm, that that would be. We would sit down on the beach, and you're yeah. bound. You know, whenever you have, when you were a kid and you go to the beach, and all your sandwiches would be gritty because they'd have yeah. sand in them. <laughs> a little bit of sand so, in them. Yeah, there's going to be sand. We're going to do a bit of uh, <laughs> <laughs> sandy eating. Um, but it'd be a crisp sandwich. We'd sit on the beach and we'd make a crisp sandwich and we'd have that and probably a glass of milk with it. I love having crisp oh sandwiches with a glass of milk. And if you put that on the table in front... So I'm literally... This is like Pavlovian. I'm actually starting to salivate now. <laughs> it's that profoundly like, powerful. Oh, have we got any a, in the house? <laughs> a cheese and onion crisp sandwich as well. It's got to be cheese and onion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 100%. Yeah, that's what um, I'd have. I'm not... The, no word for Lily. So when I was pregnant with my second child, yeah. I was very sick um, for a lot of the pregnancy. And the only thing I could eat without throwing it back up again, that's a lot of information for the story. <laughs> Good was for sharing, well done. <laughs> a cheese and onion crisps sandwich with a glass of milk. That was it. And Choice that is champions, food. Joe. It's food heaven for me. It is. I am it is. absolutely delighted. Do you know delighted. when they say like food and mood go together? Yeah. I don't think anybody's ever really tapped into what goes on when you eat a cheese sandwich, but it is literally like one of the deepest and most spiritual experiences that you can have because that's what joy is in food. I can just sit there and, oh, it's, so it's good. absolutely, yeah, I'm away somewhere else when that happens. I mean, Brilliant. If you ever see me looking down, Joe, bring me a cheese and onion <laughs> bring sandwich. Bring a cheese and onion you, sandwich. You will be spread in joy. <laughs> I will do that. I will if do you that. ever want to make change happen with me and I'm not up for it, <laughs> bring me a crisp sandwich. If you ever see me suffering, crisp sandwich. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. And, and vice versa. <laughs> Wicked. All right. <laughs> That's brilliant. We could have a support club. <laughs> <laughs> um, Excellent. Well, I'm very, very happy with that choice. That is an absolute highlight for me. Um, and so I feel very confident as we move on to the final question that this is going to finish as a really good episode because everything you've said has been brilliant. Um, how do you mature in service? What does that mean? How do you grow in purpose? Oh, uh, it was probably the word mature through me. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do I grow in purpose? I think... I, I've always... I've enjoyed getting older. Hmm. Age is never something that's ever freaked me out or worried yeah. me. I was never one of those people who got to an age and started to worry about it. <laughs> Um, I think to mature and to grow in purpose, I think the natural process of aging has really helped that because I think there is, <clears throat> and you ask anybody, I still have it now with like a real scattiness and I can run in a million different directions all at once. Yeah. And people can tell me, we're not going to do that thing, are we? And I'll say no, and then just go and do it straight away. Um, <laughs> and run off in a million different directions. So I think with age, you naturally slow down um, and I think you start to appreciate the things that you have around you. I think the practice of gratitude has probably helped me to grow in purpose, is that I realise what I'm grateful for, I realise what I have, and therefore that need to constantly search and to constantly move is not as powerful as it used to be. Um, yeah. Like I would run around and try and do 5,000 things at once, knowing that 4,999 would fall on their bum. 
yeah. but I didn't care as long as I was constantly moving. Um, and that's not to say that that hasn't, doesn't still happen, but it's now like I'll do 99 things, knowing that 98, yeah. so that it's less. <laughs> so I think that, I think it's just the natural process of slowing down. I think it's the natural process of gratitude. I think, <clears throat> and I still struggle with this now, but I probably feel safer than I've ever felt in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a sense of safety helps me grow in purpose. Um, so I think that really makes a difference. And I think seeing that you can be a part of change, where change is a good force. Yeah. Um, and that you can be surrounded by people like the people that I work with do you know what I mean when I think about my team yeah all of the team that I work with um when I think about the people around me that I've worked with in my career when I think about the frontline staff that the Salvation Army have got I think that's what helps me understand and mature in a sense of purpose because there's a real blessing that we've got I think we're absolutely blessed that we've got people who come to work every single day in such extraordinary circumstances yeah burn themselves and hurt themselves in work by constantly giving to other people mm. by putting themselves open and vulnerable and sensitive to the needs of others and that leaves a mark do you know what I mean that literally gets yeah. in their skin when you see that passion and that commitment in people that we work with I think that's probably the thing that makes me feel the most grateful is that I'm a part of the team that these people are in yeah um that helps me to does that answer the question yeah it does and I think um one of the really interesting things with you Lee is I feel like you've been answering this question right the way through um like from beginning to end I think you're one of those people where where service and purpose have this is what it feels like to me anyway, have kind of, have defined you and have shaped your journey in such an extraordinary way. And we go back to that story of you rocking up um, at the door um, in the world <laughs> and saying, I want to do something and then allowing you to do that thing and that becoming transformational for you. Um and finding joy in that and and that moment of finding purpose being really transformational and healing and liberating and then how you have tried to make sure as many other people as possible have that moment too I Um, think you have to be um You have to share that feeling. If you've been touched by that, if you've been touched by mm-hmm. it, and I've got su- such beautiful friends, such amazing friends who love me. Yeah. And I'm a difficult person to love, and I know that. Um, and they love me regardless, and they hang in there with me, and my wife loves me regardless of how hard work I am, and just hangs in there with me. And the kids love yeah. me regardless, and just hang in there with me. <clears throat> when you experience that unconditional acceptance and love you should be as generous as you possibly can with that do you know what I mean that's something that when you give it away it just creates more and more and more of it it's not like something I think that sense of gratitude and unconditional love 
when it's really truly meant, when it's properly authentic, yeah, it doesn't run out. Yeah, we almost like think that oh, I'm exhausted, but unconditional love isn't exhausting. If it's anything, it's energizing. Compassion isn't exhausting when it's done properly. It's energizing. When you yeah. give that to other people, it creates more, and it would be. When we talked before about joy, do you know what I mean? It feeds itself out. It's almost like this, this stuff strawberry plants itself. It just grows and grows and grows. So I think to be a part of that, to be part of a group of people that are so passionate about doing that for other people, mm. that those times when you, um, you're starting to tire, you look around at the passion and the commitment of the, those other people who are fighting and just fighting and it's so energizing it just picks you back up again um so i think if that's what it is i think it's a real sense of gratitude that i'm a part of that has helped me to mature and service and i think a real sense of gratitude that people accept me into doing that i think has helped me mature in purpose and i think then just being so um overwhelmed and privileged to witness that in other people I have to see that yeah. there are people like that who want to change the world. Um, yeah. And I have a profound belief in humanity. I think people are mm. good. Yeah. I do pe- think people are good. And you put them in the right set of circumstances and you give them a sense of safety. And I think you will find the best in people. That's, I fundamentally believe that people are good. They want to see the world be a better place. They just, we just have to make sure the context and the surroundings are right for them. Lee, I think that's a perfect place <laughs> to end. I think it sums up so much of what you've shared with us right the way through the conversation. Um, that sense of energy and joy and passion that you have for what you do and for other people. Um, and also the challenge to, to create that for as many others as we, as we can. And um, yeah, so... I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you for, for talking to no me. No worries at and all. For your it's time. been lovely. And the questions. I did these questions with my kids last night, sat at the table, and oh, it was yeah. one of the best conversations that like we always that we're at the table, we always have make sure that we eat and that we share and we laugh and stuff together. But asking the kids yeah. these questions last night, they absolutely loved it. Um, so thank you for letting brilliant. me a part, be a part of it here today. I really appreciate no, it. Thank you, Lee. It's brilliant. Thank you ever so much. Well, another huge thank you to Lee for joining us on our hypothetical hike and sharing so much of his experience and expertise. I think it's the combo of those things and the passion with which he communicates that means Lee's been able to do some incredible work with the Salvation Army in how we view addiction and work with those most vulnerable. Part of that work included working with our children and youth team to develop mindset. Mindset is a combination of training, theory and resources that will enable you to reflect, catch your own thoughts and feelings about what you're hearing, reading, seeing and feeling, and to resource you in your interactions with children and young people, helping them build resilience. You can find more information about that by following the link to our website in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. We'd love to know more of your thoughts and you can join in that conversation on Facebook. Just search the All Terrain Conversations and join our group there. 
please don't forget to share the podcast across your social media channels. And if you're listening on Apple podcast, we'd love it if you could give the show a rating or even write us a review. All of those things help us get the show heard by more people. You can also access brilliant sketch notes and a blog post that accompany each episode. Both of these things help me think again about the conversation that I've had and the wisdom that was captured there. Again, you can click the link in the show notes or just search the All Terrain podcast. I'll be back soon with another guest who will be facing the four choices, answering the four questions and sharing their wisdom learned along the way on the All Terrain podcast. So until then, goodbye and thanks for listening.